somebody could be experiencing your brand in what we would consider upper funnel and move very quickly to the point of purchase. Somebody could be in a store, but also be making decisions about future purchases, or it could be a gateway on a brand experience. So the way that we assume consumers are going to sit down, experience our campaign, then they're going to make a list and then they're going to go, those days are no more. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit MMA Global. We have three goals, to change how we think about marketing, to understand the challenges that CMOs face, and to unlock the true power that marketing can have. Now, this podcast is not a place for hero worship or how great CMOs are. Instead, we're gonna talk about real leadership in marketing and what it takes to drive growth today. Now, today's guest is Diana Housling. She's the Vice President, General Manager of Consumer Experience and Growth at Colgate Palmolive and serves as a Board of Director member at the MMA. She started at Colgate in 2021 when she was brought in to run digital commerce. Now, that background has given her a unique perspective on marketing, and she's going to tell us why it's time to rethink some basic fundamentals, like the funnel. We're also going to talk about maintaining the culture of a 217-year-old company like Colgate and helping other people find their superpowers and the importance of holding on to your convictions. You can find a full transcript of this interview and more at bettercmos.com. And if you like the podcast, do me a favor and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, email me. Seriously, I'm greg at mmaglobal.com. Now let's get right to my conversation with Diana Housling. Diana, I'm glad you could join me today on Building Better CMOs. How are you doing? Awesome. Better now that I'm here with you. Oh, you're just, you're too nice. You're too Mm -hmm. kind. Uh, Flattery will get you. Well, I think they say everything. I think is what they actually say around that. Where are you today? What part of the world are you in? I am in sunny Jersey, outside of Philadelphia, in my home, working from home today, living that hybrid lifestyle. You betcha. Absolutely. Hey, don't you also have a trip planned pretty soon too? Aren't you going somewhere? Yes. I have a very, very fun vacation to Turks and Caicos coming up, which I know is one of your favorite spots as well too. (laughs) And I'm just counting down. I'm living for the moment that I will be on vacation. You and I have never missed a conversation where Turks and Caicos somehow didn't get worked into it. That's what I noticed. Of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> oh, great. No, I, I do love it there. Although, oh my God, they really took an aisle and made it very expensive, which I think is funny for New Yorkers yeah, to say. They sure whatever. did. Listen, I always like to kind of just start with sort of something going on in the news. So, you know, listen, chat GPT is kind of all in the news. It's everywhere. You talked about it at the MMA's Possible event recently. So, you know, I didn't get a chance to hear all those comments because I was busy sort of running the event. What's your take on this whole AI is this a real thing? I don't know. What, what's yours or Colgate's take? Well, I mean, not just is it cool. And you know, I wish that we had it when I was in college so I could play around with it. But I think what's exciting about it is our ability to leverage it, to drive efficiency. So we're leveraging it from media to supply chain in a lot of cool ways. But I think the less sexy way that I think it's exciting is the time that it's going to give us. So how do you shift over some tactical work that you don't really want to spend your big agency dollars on or have your big strategic minds on? How can you shift that work over to make more space? And then the question becomes, what will we do with all that space and time? to actually be marketers. <laughs> Wait, are you suggesting we get to work less than 60 hour weeks here soon? Is that where you're going? 
I'm pretty sure I will find activities to fill that time with, but I, I am a leader that loves a rest and recharge. But I do think there's an opportunity for our time with all the bureaucracies, especially when you're working in larger CPGs, like Colgate Palmolive is 217 years old. A lot of bureaucracy comes into play. And then there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of things that we you just have to do from a good brand hygiene standpoint. If we can shift some of that work over, lower impact, but high complexity work over to something else that can be more efficient, what could we do with all that brain power? I don't know. I feel like I'm having yeah, a little no. evil genius moment, but I think we could yeah, do something I, with that. I totally see that coming. It's funny. I actually had to write a press release for building better CMOs over the weekend. And, you know, listen, that, I don't know, it'll take me, what, an hour to sit and write a press release? I literally went, I actually took the liner notes that Eric here, you know, my producer had given me. I just threw them in, said, give me a press release and voila. 15 seconds later, I had a full press release. It was actually pretty good. I've sent it to Eric. So I think we got, we got a pretty good. So you're right. That's a lot of extra time that's sort of put to better use and sitting around laboring over it, getting every word right. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, it's not going to replace the creative genius and the intuition and the experience or even just the gut and the know-how that comes from marketers. But what we can start to do is really shift our team's focus on high impact, you know, highly yeah. complex work streams that allow yeah. us to drive business impact. Yeah. Listen, I'm with you. I, I, listen, I know you well enough. You know, I think you and I are both like people trying to live in the future all the time. So bring it on. Let's figure this out and go take advantage of it. Exactly. Hey, Danny, you mentioned something else there though, kind of caught my attention. I saw in the news. So, you know, Colgate, two, I, didn't, I don't know if I remembered it was over 200 years old, but it is an incredibly well-entrenched in America company, no question about it. But did you guys also just win some awards recently for innovation? Yes, we did. And across our other brands, um, first of all, we invented the first recyclable tube and shared that innovation with um, the entire industry. Sustainability is a huge focus for us, but it's not just for us to sell more items. It's really about how do we play our role as good corporate citizens and ensure that we're making a sustainable future for everyone and we all have to play a part in that. So that was really exciting for the team. And it's also exciting for the industry. And the work that we're doing there is pretty remarkable. And from a Colgate North America perspective, we actually have a huge focus on sustainability across all our brands. But it's led by our Toms of Maine brand, which happens to be a B Corp. So off the bat, a percentage of profits are going to invest back in the community. And then as a real part of their brand focus, which is about, you know, just being do-gooders and investing back in the community, they've launched not only a focus on sustainability across all their brands, but they've also invested in an incubator program, which is really cool if you haven't seen it. And it really highlights activists across the sustainability environmentalists playing field. And it gives them a voice and specifically in a lot of communities which are overly impacted by the challenges that we see with the environment, but are often underrepresented. So think about black and brown communities that may or may not have the same level of voice in this environmental sustainability conversation and really allowing them to take up space and giving them dollars to support their cause. It's pretty cool. I'm very proud of it. Um, and if you haven't checked it out on LinkedIn, please do. Chris Martini is the CEO of Toms and Maine, and she is really leading the charge. Um, and it's really exciting to see it all unfold. 
That's actually an interesting thing. I don't know that I was aware that there was a B Corp as a subsidiary of Colgate, I'm assuming, correct? Yes. And what's the company? What's the product? What's the business? A little bit, just to make sure everybody's clear. It's called Tom's of Maine. So think about, it's the OG of naturals. So Tom's of Maine is in the oral care department, deodorants across the board. Think about personal care items. So a really cool brand with huge consumer loyalty, but a real value proposition that I think resonates not only with consumers who find themselves very you know ingrained in this space, but consumers who just want to do their part. And buying Tom's of Maine product is an easy way to not only get a good consumer experience, but actually do your part and make that decision to invest back in your communities. Phenomenal. I don't think I realized that that's how they structured it. Well, that was really living, corporately living your values, I guess is the way yep. you put that. So, oh, 100%. good for that. 100%. Excellent. Good. Let's get into our topic today. So listen, you, you know the theme here, right? This is all about, and you know, kind of thematic with the MMA. What are we doing to make marketing better, stronger? Which means we have to first admit that we're maybe not great at something, or we've missed the boat, or we haven't gotten something nailed. So, so we can go in any direction. But why don't we start with a little bit about, I always like to ask this question. I can't tell if it sounds too negative. I hope it doesn't. But it's like, what do you think in your experience exposure that marketing or marketers don't necessarily get right about marketing? And I'm not looking for research. I'm looking for your opinion. As you look out at the world, what do you think we don't fully understand? Well, you know, I love that question and the challenge. You know, I consider myself and my team disruptors for good. So anything that kind of pushes against the status quo, I'm here for it. So bring it. So for me specifically, as I think about marketing as an art form, I do not have a traditional marketing background. And I think that is one of the biggest opportunities as we think about how we approach marketing. You know, there's a lot of folks that take a textbook or a philosophy and that's it, ride or die. And I think my challenge is that some of the constructs that we think have existed for such a long time, especially like the upper funnel, lower funnel, have really blown up as technology and change have really put consumers in the driver's seat and in control. And I think the challenge for marketers of today is to take the fundamentals of marketing, but also apply them with the reality and the human insights of today. And that means that that notion of the upper funnel, lower funnel is a little archaic. Consumers can come in and out at any moment in time. And our role as marketers is to create products that delight, that create products that anticipate consumers' needs, but also to allow them to engage and build loyalty with our brands so that we're able to continue to offer up new and exciting innovation and withstand the test of time and be around for another 200 years. So if the funnel's collapsing, is that the thematic you think that we don't have to run a brand ad lure them in and then suddenly give them a performance ad later on weeks, months down the road or whatever. Is that why the funnel sort of fails or? It's not product led, it's consumer led. And I think in theory, we all know this, you know, we all say how we're consumer centric and, you know, on my team, we talk about how we're consumer obsessed and we're people obsessed, but to be people and human success means you have to put them at the center of the experience. And so really understanding for that consumer, either you are trying to bring in or the ones that you already have, how do you meet them where they are and talk to them in a way that resonates and breaks through all the chatter and all the noise? 
you know, there was a point in time where consumers only had a few hundred, maybe a thousand or so impressions a day or interactions. Now, if you just think about the fact that we carry little computers around in our back pockets, we're also inundated with so many different messages. And typically consumers are leveraging multiple screens at a time. So how do you actually break through, engage, and communicate with consumers if you are forced to live within the constructs of an upper funnel, lower funnel mentality? Somebody could yeah. be experiencing your brand in what we would consider upper funnel and move very quickly to the point of purchase. Somebody could be in a store, but also be making decisions about future purchases, or it could be a gateway and a brand experience. So the way that we assume consumers are going to sit down, experience our campaign, then they're going to make a list and then they're going to go, those days are no more especially for Gen Z who want more of an instant gratification and are used to that. They're expecting to get things when they want them and how they want them. And our consumers are expecting us to speak to them. So in a lot of our touch points, and you think about them being mass produced, we have to figure out a way to drive scale, but also personalization, which requires a unique approach to campaign development. Well, we certainly have reset customer expectations. I mean, I think for me, I first saw that when it's a little old at this point, but you know, when Uber came around and actually said, you know, here's where the car is and here's how fast it'll be to you. At that moment, I was like, oh my God, they're going to reset everybody's expectations for every category. If you can say how much of Colgate's business now is done through sort of more immediacy of channels, i.e. delivery or e-commerce, how much of that is going on today? We're still primarily a brick and mortar business. And most of our conversion happens in the brick and mortar space, although we are seeing tremendous growth in digital commerce across all modalities, whether it's click and collect, whether it's intermediaries like an Instacart, or even if it's traditional e-commerce, pure play delivery. And so it's about balancing the fact that the store is here to stay and people want that experience, but people are promiscuous. They also want to be able to <laughs> get something shipped to their door, depending on their need state, or they want to be able to do both. And we know most of our consumers who do click and collect, 40% of them actually go into the store and make additional purposes. I think for our categories, I think the biggest challenge that we have is that when somebody's shopping in the digital commerce space, they're typically thinking about a grocery trip. Like, what am I going to make for dinner? What meal am I going to prepare? And we have to make sure we get in that consideration set because we do lose the ability of folks to, you know, you're browsing in the aisle. Oh, yeah, I forgot I need a toothpaste or I need this fabuloso. So we miss a little of that. So being able to remind consumers of our purchase is something that we definitely focus on. But I think for us, it's about balance. We want you to choose us when you go into the store and to choose us when you shop online. And we also found that the consumer types aren't that different between brick and mortar and digital commerce anymore. Really, the pandemic has democratized who is shopping online and who has access to online. And it's also proven to folks that it can be convenient, but also effective for their lifestyle. So it's important that we win in both areas. So we take this assumption then that uh, the funnel is collapsed, okay? Or that the, I don't know if we've gone so far as to say the funnel is dead, which some people have said, you know, I've heard that before. How does that change then what Colgate does? How do you get the teams to relook at how they activate in that arena? In particular, would you say, well, the consumer centricity around it? So there's a couple of things. First, you know, the formation of my team was really designed to address this very issue. So I have a very unique model for my team. We have revenue growth management, insights, 
data and advanced analytics, what I would call integrated marketing. So think about your traditional media, campaign development, digital commerce, D2C, and then the pure play team all sit within my team. And for a lot of folks, when they first hear that construct, it's like, well, those things don't quite go together. But if you think about our ability to put the consumer at the center of everything that we do, all of their touch points across a brand at the center of that universe, and really designing an experience for them that puts them at the center of it, that was really how my team came about. And so first it's structure because, you know, for larger corporations, structure does sometimes drive how teams work together. And then the second component that is just rethinking the constructs, a lot of these very traditional functions that are so critical to being successful, but people don't always think of top of mind when you talk about marketing. Legal and how we approach legal in a very litigious category that has a lot of claims. How do we leverage our legal partners at the right moment in time? And for us, that's very early, even in the R&D process, so that we're able to develop products and brands that work well. Our science, by the way, is bar none, but also that we're able to talk about it in a way that makes consumer excited but protects us also. And then if you think about other functions like finance, you know, flexibility within a PL is really critical if you're going to shift as the consumer shifts and your ability to place big bets around things that are working and pull money away from things that aren't working is also critical. So all of those things really have to be reimagined and adjusted so that we could really move in this new way of engaging consumers. I mean, listen, let's take Colgate, one of the most storied brand companies of all time. There's no question about that. Some amazing brands that have been built over a long legacy. But then you also said you have DTC in your group, direct to consumer. Boy, that's really, that's like letting cats and dogs sleep together at some <laughs> level. I, I don't know. There's like a, there's like a complexity because those are two totally different skill sets to do the soft sell of brand and combined with the hard edge analytics transaction orientation at DTC. Talk more about how you do that, how you structure that, because I think that's going to catch a, a lot of people's attention. Yeah. And I think just so you know, we're the number one brand in the planet. I like to throw that in there from time and time again as Colgate. Colgate, number one brand? Number one brand in the planet. Just a little, little trivia for you. But from a D2C perspective, you know, we thought about this a couple of different ways. But specifically for D2C, obviously we're converting, we're driving conversion through our D2C channels, but we're also leveraging it for insights. So both our CRM and insights arm of our team sits with D2C. So think about being able to talk to your loyalist consumers, listen to what they, they want, what they like, what they don't like, and act quickly to test creative relatively quickly for either, you know, our national partners or even our retail media friends who have big ships as well too. And to take those learnings and to feed them into our innovation pipeline, our strategy. So D2C serves several roles. And that's one is, you know, us actually being able to give consumers a delightful experience, but also being able to get insights and data and build that 1P data relationship with a lot of consumers that we can then leverage to drive our strategies, but also to build better innovation. So Dan, I got to say, this sounds a little bit like utopia, especially when you just throw in sort of the CRM, which is a whole nother dynamic of customer experience as a marketing strategy. It feels like you're just kind of breaking all the molds here. Is that emblematic to you? Was that a Colgate decision and then they found you? 
where'd you get this kind of orientation to the world? So initially I was brought in to lead a team called The Hive, which is our digital commerce team. And I think, you know, what I love about Colgate and which is really cool about a company that's been around so long is actually is a company of innovators. Innovative, not from a, just a product standpoint, but innovative in and an openness to how things are done. And that's really cool. It wasn't something I expected, especially for a company that's been around for 217 years and with some of the preconceived notions that I had about the company. But if you think about to be the number one brand in the planet means you have to have a presence everywhere. And that level of human insight that it takes to be relevant in market to market, city to city, income level that changes, dynamics that changes, cultural shifts, means that you have to be open to doing things differently. And I think you know, as the company made bold moves to think about what's going to take us to the next 200 years and how do we push forward, running the old play wasn't going to necessarily do that. So the cool thing about Colgate Palmolive and the leadership team here is that they actually looked at what it would take to get us to the next 200 years. So what had gotten us here and that running that same old play isn't going to work going forward. And we also realized as we were bringing in and really developing specialists in order to do things differently, to win in CRM, to win in search, to win in digital and transform digitally like everybody's doing, but that we really needed to create an environment that allowed those subject matter experts to thrive. And as we looked at the team, we tried to figure out how we could put them in the best position so that they could drive the business, but also allow them to bring in and influence how we transformed. So that was really the catalyst was really considering, and my, the, my title is consumer experience and growth. So at the heart of it, how do we create that consumer experience that drives loyalty and is demand generating, but then how do we grow as an organization? And that's the focus for my remit at Colgate Palmolive. Okay, okay. So this sounds a little bit like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, the old, old Facebook, now Meta, you know, move fast and break things. I wouldn't have expected that within Colgate. There's got to create some angst somewhere in the company. There's got to create some uncertainty and there's got to be a latitude to let you be wrong every once in a while. I would think. I don't know. Talk a little bit about how the corporation or your particular management supports you on that. I think because, I mean, you couldn't do this on your own. Oh, absolutely not. You got to have buy-in. Yeah, I would I would say Jesper Nordergaard is my president and he is a phenomenal leader, but he also really does one of the cool things that I think leaders do is create a path for you to do and be awesome, but then also gives you air cover so you can fail and fail fast and move forward. So that's just something in his leadership style. The cool thing about Jesper is he has been at Colgate since he was 19. So he knows Colgate, but he also has an entrepreneurial spirit so that the marrying of the two worlds is awesome. But aside from just having the support system of my leader and his vision for North America, I think what is something that is unique about Colgate is that the culture at Colgate is consistent no matter what office you go into anywhere around the world. And I didn't really, I was like, "Mm, is this just like, are you guys just drinking the Kool-Aid or is this really a thing? In my experience now that I've actually gone to our general management meeting, visited some different locations. That is true. And they really do a good job about moving talent around the globe. As a result, there's this natural trust that exists 
not only within each other, because think about this, you're moving your family around and you're really investing your future in the organization. So there's this connection point that I think some other organizations don't really benefit from, but it also creates a trust with the employee population. And it's a long tenured organization for a lot of folks, you've known them for years so that trust is built in. Now, some people may say, okay, then great. And I asked myself this question when I came there, everyone I interviewed with had been there for like 25 years. Will the organ reject new? Yeah, totally. Can new come in and drive change? And I always describe Colgate as the land of the willing. They're hungry for it. Like bring in that new idea, bring in that new concept because of the fluidity of career movement and the fact that you grow within the organization, the ego of protecting your turf isn't quite there. So it's something I haven't experienced before. It's kind of, you know, what else could we be doing? In order to make something like that, you need that as your foundation point. Otherwise, you know, you will have organ rejection. I think the other piece is as an organization, we've made a concerted effort to bring folks in that have certain experiences that bring a perspective while also valuing the awesomeness that allowed the company to be around for 217 years and growing because there's a lot in there that we don't want to leave behind and we don't want to lose. We want to keep that momentum going. And I think the other part is making sure that we upskilled everyone so that we are creating an equal playing field. So the cool thing about my team is it's a nice mix of folks that are external, folks that are have been at Colgate for 15, 20 years, and folks from around the globe. So you're really getting the best of what Colgate uh, has to offer while also attracting the best externally. So that's pretty exciting. I'm gonna ask you for like the five point plan to making something like this successful. So just off the top of your head, and listen, I'm hearing like, you know, there's a culture that allows and accepts change at some dynamic and puts an element of trust I heard there. But if you were to masterly design a company that could do this, and listen, what you're talking about cannot be easily recreated, but so I, I, I hate to oversimplify, but what do you think that five point plan would be? The first thing is the culture piece. So you have to meet the culture and the company where it is on the journey. You can't copy paste this structure and put it in another company. Like this would not work at the Campbell Soup organization where I recently came from, at least three years ago when I was there. So this is not you, a mission statement put on the plaque and in, in headquarters. Yeah. Exactly. And then everybody yeah, cut and, paint and rinse and repeat. And it really has to meet. And there was a lot of discussion that we had with where things should go based off of where we are today. There also be, needs to be a line of sight because you can't get overprotective about where it is today, about where it needs to be tomorrow. So there's some elements that are in my team that are in my team today for a moment in time. Once they get to a certain point, they should be able to integrate in other areas. And you kind of need to have a line of sight to that, but not be married to it because it, as you evolve and grow, it may change. Is that a predefined, we're going to kick them out of this when? Kind of, I don't know if that's really It's what more it is. scenario plannings. Like, oh, hey, okay. if it goes Got this it. way, I Love could it. see this group going here. Or, you know, and really kind of having that exactly like, you know, potential, where could we take it? I think the scenario planning is the single most underrated thing that marketers don't do. They develop, oh boy, this is, boy, you really just triggered me on this one. (laughs) They develop a series of sacred cows and people protect their fiefdoms and therefore change doesn't happen because we've not agreed on the original goals. We've not agreed how to measure it. We've not agreed to the actions we're going to take when we find out that our assumption hypothesis was off. By the way, this is something Linda Lee and I just talked about from Campbell's. Okay, keep going. What else? 
And then there has to be a conviction in your decisions. So I am definitely somebody who pushes the status quo. I'm definitely somebody who does that with my leadership, with my partners. But once we align on something and lead that room, that conviction that we are all on board, this is the right thing to do, has to be there. If you don't think your cross-functional partners will have that conviction, it's going to fall down before it even gets to the teams. Because if you are not one team, if you're not your first team, it's going to be impossible for you to galvanize an organization to follow you in any direction. Conviction. Boy, I don't know. You know, listen, you know, I'm a CEO of a company. I have a gun to my head every day that affirms my conviction. I don't know how you get that in rank and file where you don't, I mean, listen, you know, it's, I often tell people, I've said this a lot. People tell me they, they've done entrepreneurial ventures within a company. I says, yeah, if you haven't almost missed payroll, you've not really done early stage. You don't know what that means <laughs> until, until you're, you don't think you're going to make payroll on Friday. That's what to me provides that sense of, if I'm using conviction yeah. in the same way you are. Talk a little bit more about conviction, by the way, go one more step on that. What does that mean? So it's a couple of things. So first of all, is this the the right thing to do for the business? Okay. You know, if I think about the example that I use with my team that not everybody loves, because again, this is ch- change management. Not everybody, it's not roses and daisies. and Like there are hard conversations, it's hard work. But I talk about the Kodak organization and when they were at their prime and how they must have felt walking into that building every day. And now in retrospect, would they have ever imagined that still a viable company, but not really at the prime of what they could have been. And it's really important that we don't have a sense of entitlement. We've been here for 217 years. We're not entitled to be here for another 200 unless we act. And there has to be a level of responsibility when you have a brand of that weight. Like we are parts of a broader history of a huge brand and a huge brand story. And our responsibility as brand stewards has to drive our passion, our focus to make sure that these brands don't fall down on our watch. And so that sense of ownership, you know, at Campbell's, they had this saying before they changed their values that really always stuck with me, which is like, own it like a founder. So that sense of conviction that not only must we move, we must act, but it's our responsibility to make sure this works. Now, that doesn't mean you're not open to changing or adjusting, but you can't go change everything. You got to give it at least a little bit of time to set, to see what works and what doesn't. But once you start to design the structure and then you bring in you know, the rank and file, they are the ones that are doing the work hands on keys day to day. So there's going to be things that have to adjust and evolve on how you do the work. But that's when you bring them in to add the value of, hey, we want to hear from you. What's working, what's not working, but how might we make this work? in this way. So that was going to be my next thing, which is all about how do you leverage the people? The people have to understand what's in it for them. They have to understand what's in it for the organization. And they have to also understand there's an expectation for them to be a part of this change journey. And that is where the work really starts. It's one thing to set the boxes up and to say, this is the structure. The work really happens when you pull in the teams and they start to really kind of live into it and not just talk about it in theory. I've been around a lot of startups and a lot of early stage business. A lot of them have been fairly successful. You can always mark the beginning of the end when arrogance seeps into it. How do you protect against your own arrogance or entitlement? Because it's kind of hard when you get to these positions, you start to believe your own press, the media writes about you, they make you a 40 under 40, whatever, right? (laughs) 
Well, I'm lucky enough to have my own little hater in my brain that reminds me <laughs> that I may or may not uh, live up to the stats that I have. I think I have that personally have the opposite problem. But I think for me personally, I know what my gaps are. I luckily am not even close to the smartest person on my team. I surround myself with really smart people who have no problem whatsoever telling me that I'm wrong and also telling me how we could do things better. So I think it's picking the people that you surround yourself with, your network, your tribe, whatever you want to call it, whether it's the people that you work with every day. So for me, that's the leadership team, my first team, but also the broader organization. But then it's also the people who you pull into your life. You're a person I go to for feedback. Linda Lee is another person that's on that list. Yin Rani is another person. Marcy Rebel. ton of people who care enough about me being too successful to tell me the truth. You know, Sarah Hostetter is another person that does that tremendously for me. And having those people, that tribe of people who's, who don't have an agenda, they have no skin in the game other than wanting you to succeed it's really critical and having those safe places to go to. But I think the other thing that I've noticed in my career that I gravitate to is leaders who push me, but also see my full potential, see things in me that I didn't really, really, I wasn't really able to crystallize because it's not just about, you know, here are your gaps. These are the things you have to work on, but really leaning into your superpowers so that the organization gets the most out of you, but you're also your most effective self. Boy, I love that. That's an awful lot to sort of ask to accomplish. But where where did you get such a strong orientation to all this, by the way? This feels like this is not something you developed at any one of your recent companies. This is long, this is long standing. Well, I come from a very Caribbean family, extremely hardworking with a focus on education and the importance of education and the impact it could not only have on you, but all of those around you, and a really strong sense of community. And that responsibility to, to not only my family and extended family, but also to the people that have came before me, my ancestors, you know, my grandparents who worked so hard to not only come to the United States, but be successful and have multiple degrees, really pushing for each generation to be that much better and stronger. It's something that I focus on, but it's also an example that I saw with my parents was it wasn't just enough for us to succeed. Everybody around us needed to succeed because it's no fun unless everybody around you is also successful. So there was a real focus on investing in other people, but also working hard and not feeling like anything is entitled to you. I grew up very privileged, but I also grew up with a sense of responsibility to the community and to the people around me. And that's the value system that I think helps me stay humble, but also helps me know what I'm pretty awesome at and what value I bring to the table and so that I can leverage my skills to add value places. Because I think especially for women and Black women, you know, there is a push to be humble, to not brag, to not be able to say, you know, I'm freaking awesome at that. And I could help you in this area. And I think part of just my presence in a lot of these rooms that weren't designed for people who look like me allows other people to be able to do that as well, too. But it also gives me a sense of responsibility to ensure that I don't waste that privilege and I leverage it to elevate others' voices, but I also leverage it to drive the business results. 
I think when you can connect those two things, your purpose with your profit, I think that's when it becomes really fun to go to work every day. I suspect too, Diana, just listening to you and haven't gotten to know you here for a little while now that um, I think your team really senses both that sense of responsibility, a, a lack of arrogance around it, in addition to an essential belief in your ability to lead them through that, I think is probably what's happening here. It's very interesting. You're the perfect person to create the change. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I think for me, what I see more with my team is I can actually see, you know, and this I think is one of my strengths. I can see their superpowers. I can see their potential. I do feel like I am able to give people a mirror to what they can do that's awesome and help them realize that. And I think what helps me drive transformation is not having all the answers because I don't. And I work with a team of subject matter experts that know more about their space than I could ever know. But giving them a space and the air cover and just the ability to move and then getting shit out of their way so they can move quickly is really, really the role that I really play in driving the change management for them. I think the other thing for me is I don't necessarily put limits on myself. I have never set I want to be in the C-suite. I want to do this. I want to do that. It's kind of my career trajectory has taken me there. It's not until the past like few years that I've been a little bit more intentional about that, which is a mistake, by the way. Do not do that. Be intentional from the beginning. But <laughs> it's something that, you know, I've kind of, that looks like a really cool thing. I would want to do that. Or I've had a lot of leaders say, you know, you should do this role. You'd be good at it and shift around. It wasn't until recently I became more intentional but I do think, you know, one of the other things that really drives me is I think about the generational wealth that just by, you know, being a black person in America that I've missed out on. And I do think it's my responsibility to rebuild that generational wealth for my family and to be really intentional and thoughtful about it. And I know for a lot of folks, talking about money can feel a bit uncouth and make you uncomfortable. Talking about power especially when you're a woman, can make people uncomfortable. But those are things that I strive for because they allow for me to do all of the other awesome things that I want, You know, whether it's giving my son opportunities that he may not have had, or it's really being able to take risks from a business setting because I do not have to necessarily think about can I get another job? I know I can get another job, but so how do I make the best call for the business and not just have to focus on the politics, even though we all have to focus on politics? So that definitely fuels me. The sense of responsibility you have to set an example is a very powerful idea. I heard a guy tell a story a number of years ago that he was in a plane crash and was injured, and obviously, and then watched his family die around him. And that's a pretty horrific experience. And a lot of people would say, you know, why would you ever do that? And it was like 25, 30 years later that he ran into somebody who heard his story. And this woman came up to him and said, I was in a plane crash and I didn't know I'd ever find anybody else who'd been through the same thing. And he kind of realized at that point he had maybe been put on earth for that one communication to that one person at that point in time that he, that was his experience. I mean, that's really having the long view of how the world works. And, I, and I'm here, and you've mentioned that a couple of times here, generational dynamics. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a things I can do every day, like invest in somebody, have conversations, give what a lot of people gave to me back to people that I directly interact with. But then there's also just the notion of, you know, and I, and I get this sometimes when I do, you know, public speaking or something like that, where afterwards, there are people that come up to me specifically to say, 
I have not seen someone that looks like me or I haven't seen someone that looks like you because it's it's not just black women. It's basically people who just haven't been able to identify themselves. You know, even people who just may be more casual in their delivery style even are like, oh, I didn't know you could do that and be in these kind of roles. I think if we just start to show people that there isn't one version of what X title looks like, then we will find that we will have more people pushing into those spaces who will stretch us even further. You know, getting back to the, the marketing topics, I think in some ways we've become complacent. Marketers have become complacent. Yeah, marketers have become complacent with the formulas and the way of doing marketing that we're losing that bright-eyedness of how to- Or, or we haven't even really taken the time to understand the underlying dynamics about how it really works. How do you really persuade somebody differently? What the work that we've done within MMA around sort of growth frameworks. I mean, I think most marketers and I didn't when I was a CMO, I didn't understand the underlying growth frameworks. How could I have been, it feels almost corporately irresponsible to have not understood some of that dynamic. Well, and and part of that too is, um, you know, if I just use the model and run the play, then the account of, you know, it's a little bit of a fear. Like I'm not fully accountable. I did all the things. I followed all the right steps. So I think there's just an opportunity for us to, you know, just rethink about how, you know, that, you know, the employee profile for a marketer. It it doesn't mean that the traditional marketing approach isn't something that we need. We definitely need it. But how do we round it out that allows for an expanded way of thinking and a, a truly open mindset? This all sounds good. And I heard your bit too about you get energy from it. I, I feel the same way about myself. However, it still can be draining. Things cannot go your way. How do you manage through some of the otherwise maybe difficult moments and, and sort of keep focus, keep going, whatever? Talk a little bit about that. It's extremely draining. And especially driving change can be exhausting. Um, but I kind of tell my team, it's like college. When you look back on college, you only remember the good times and the highlights. You forget about the nights that you stayed up all night studying and any other shenanigans that happen. You kind of have this memory of it that really just makes it exciting. And the fulfillment from what you accomplish is pretty exciting too. But the one thing I have that is both, both has both been a beauty and a curse is, you know, my family is a high medical needs family. There have been a lot of medical challenges that my family has gone through. And what I've learned from those experiences is that you take it appointment by appointment. You focus on the things that you can control. You leverage your voice and speak up as a medical advocate for the person that you love or yourself. And toothpaste is teeny tiny in comparison to, you know, having an illness or dealing with something like that. So being able to put it in perspective, it enables me to kind of operate differently. Now, do I get hot? Am I very passionate? Am I also a very in tune with my emotions? I don't think saying somebody is emotional is a bad thing. We like to say that emotions are bad, but we're humans. We're supposed to have emotions. I have all of those things. And you know, there's a good number of times where they're great and there's a good number of times when they're not ideal. But that's, again, why you have that support system. I have a support system that doesn't allow me to wallow too long, to vent too much, and to really focus on what am I going to do next? I'm just extremely privileged to have that. And it's interesting because throughout my career, I have just been surrounded by people that have really fed into me and fueled into me, but continue to do that regardless of if we work together or not. Most of these people look nothing like me and we don't have that much in common other than 
we all are passionate, ambitious people who care about each other. Yeah. And I like the fact that you're sort of open about that. And yet you're open about the ambition, which I think, like you said, I think is not always sort of appreciated at some level. It's sort of like not talked about like money. You mentioned that earlier, but at the same time too, you know, I, I used the word with you last week, right? You just come across so authentic in who you are and what you're trying to do which means you're at some level just being true to yourself. Or trying to. That's really, regardless you're right or wrong is irrelevant. It's like, it's true to you and what you want to be and who you are. I'm trying to be true to myself. I, it's getting easier with old age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not at old age yet, but okay. <laughs> it's getting easier as I get older, yeah. but it's still hard. You know, I think it's hard to be your authentic self and it's hard for others to earn your authenticity. We talk a lot in uh, corporate settings about bring your authentic self to work, but I push back on that notion a bit because not every space deserves your authenticity. And you just happen to be in a lot of really cool spaces that I think lend me the grace to be my full self, but also our spaces, especially in the ones we're in where you want to be challenged, you want a challenging conversation, but you also want to have an intellectual conversation, which lends itself to people being able to show up, speak their ideas, you know, in a way that's appropriate, but also yearning to learn and maybe be moved in another direction because of what they heard. I got a funny question for you. What do you do when you think you missed the mark or maybe get it wrong? Or I don't know, maybe say the thing you, in retrospect, think you shouldn't have said or some variation of that. What, how do you do that? That happens quite a bit to me. Um, (laughs) First, you build that trust in the upfront. I think that once people know you, I mean, they know your intentions, they know where you come from. And, you know, I also use my network as a sounding board. When I say this, how does it land? You know, I work on those things. You know, specifically, there's air spaces where I want to be an ally and advocate for communities that I'm not a part of. So I do practice and, you know, it takes time to get it right. And I think sometimes as allies, we don't always show up because we're so nervous about saying something wrong. Once you've done it a couple times and you realize, you know what, it's not that bad, and you surround yourself with people who care about you, you know, you'll, you'll get it right the next time. I think that fear of failure is what stops so many of us from pushing forward, but it also really stops us from being really good allies and supporting other people. Do you think fear of failure is universal or do you think it also has a gender dynamic to it? And I'm asking that as a father of twin daughters, by the way, that's where my question is coming from. I think it's both. I do think fear of failure is definitely something that exists across highly ambitious people in general. So man, woman, non-binary, wherever you are, I think that that exists with everyone. Also, your ego gets in the way too, because you've been successful for so long and you're successful out of a lot of things that your ego can't always handle the hits in the same way. And that's something, especially in senior roles, you have to work on is being able to check your ego or have like a tough ego. But I think for women, it really does hit a little different because of the way that we're raised and gender norms. You know, when I was growing up, there was this notion that you could have it all, but you can't have it all. You can't do all the things. Like I I missed the fifth grade recital. I didn't commit to going, but I was going to be a surprise, but it didn't quite work out. So I felt like a failure. But when I think about all the other ways that I'm showing up, to raise a highly functioning human who is a good, just all around person, I think that I can get a pass in the fifth grade recital. 
Um, <laughs> and so really thinking about what mark you want to leave on the world and not just at work helps you be able to push through the fear. I will say for me, pushing through the fear, financial security is also a way that you can push through the fear. If you're concerned about every comment that you make preventing you from getting that next promotion, getting that next job, you will not, you will be frozen and you won't be able to be your most impactful self. Um, so I do think the fear hits a little different for women. I found for me that I haven't been really able, I know I present very confident, but I'm uh, highly insecure. I haven't been able to push the fear down. What I've focused on is to do it anyway. So how do I have fear, but do it anyway? And so that's really what I've been focused on. And I'm hoping everybody tells me the older you get, the less you care about things like that, and the less fear you have. So I'm hoping it'll continue to get better. I got a couple of years on you and I'll vouch for that. And yes, I think one of my favorite ones, and I'm assuming the producer will be able to sort of blank this out, but you know, fear. I mean, you just cannot dwell on it. You just cannot spend time. Listen, fear serves a role to keep us away from real danger sometimes, like, you know, a a fear of bears. That's a good fear. But a fear is brought into the workplace. I'm not so sure it serves me that much. And so, you know, I've heard the phrase uncover, discover, discard, you know, like figure out like what's going on get rid of it and sort of move on because it's that. And then it's only until I do that, that then I start to make, I think, better decisions, at least for me. There's also a notion of level setting the fear to your point, like bear attack, big fear, you know, <laughs> appropriate fear. You know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Getting an answer wrong in a meeting or not knowing something in a meeting, yeah. maybe a little fear, yeah. you know, so yeah. really yeah. being able to put it in the, on, on the spectrum of fear, where do we yeah, sit yeah, today? Yeah. I play this with my team, especially with a lot of the women on the team. Like we do the scenarios, again, scenario planning. Like, so what happens if you do it? Okay, then what happens? Then what happens? And typically it's not that bad. So once you realize the worst that can happen and it's not that bad, do it anyway. Yeah, but you're right. It takes a special environment and support to be able to sort of help most people do that because they vary in levels of sort of fear or, or fear inhibitor or whatever you might want to call it. So. I love that you said kind of a really critical thing in there, which to me was around just yourself, you know, that you get energy out of doing this. And I don't know that a lot of people get energy. Somehow it ends up being sort of life sucking to people. And that's really unfortunate because I, I feel the same way. And I think it's my single greatest attribute is like, it's the sense of that showing up and that it reinforces a positive with me, which I just, I don't know that happens for everybody. I don't know why it's different. Let's do a little bit of lightning round here a little bit. Okay. So a couple of things, who else in marketing person, company, whoever do you, do you most admire? I don't know. You want to pick on anybody in particular or even a I'm recent- going to pick on Yin, Ronnie. Oh my it, God. You went like, like my favorite. Yes. Okay. Go. And the Why? Reason what I love about Yin, first of all, she's a fierce advocate. She's 100%. ridiculously smart, but she also is the opposite of me personality wise, which makes her one of the best mentors and coaches ever because I'm really able to see things from a different lens. So that's how she impacts me personally. She's also one of those people who saw me when I didn't see myself. And so I'm always forever grateful for her for that. But what's super cool about Yin is how she approaches marketing, which is in a completely different way. She's actually one of the people who, um, when I saw her, I was like, oh, I could do this and I could do it my way. 
The latest work that she's done with the uh, relaunch of the Got Milk campaign is super cool. All right, style milk, start your day. Body fuel, time to play. Drinking it after class milk. Three to one, blast milk. Full of calcium milk, making number one milk. Twist milk, tough milk. How do you do? What up, milk? Shuffle milk, shop milk. Question, got milk? The way that she's tapped into the community, but in like the real human truth behind the campaign is interesting. But I also love the way that she's creatively partnered with the agency to kind of just hack traditional ways of approaching things. So just if you haven't seen it, really cool, something to check out. We didn't really get into some of this here, but what do you think is most overhyped in marketing today? Three, aside from the metaverse and web three. (laughs) Boy, that was a real flash, wasn't it? Came on, went away pretty quick. Yeah, very relevant, very cool for brands that have a point of view and a position to be in it right now. But I don't think it was like everything we thought it was going to be two years ago. I think I went to every conference I went to, like the metaverse was everywhere. The conference uh, series that I went to this year, I don't think one person talked about the metaverse. Yeah. So definitely a little over. There. <laughs> it's not ready. It's not ready for marketing yet. Okay, we'll go with that. How about that? A little bit more time could be interesting. Okay, what about what do you think is most underappreciated in marketing today? The fundamentals and the power of the SME. You know, there was a what's time, an SME? Break oh, a subject matter expert. You know, there was a time period where we really focused on getting the best creative out of creatives. Now we have to do that with a myriad of different partners, whether it's the search team, the CRM team. Marketers now have to be awesome orchestra conductors. You know, you have to understand the instruments, but not be able to play them beautifully. And then you also have to be able to bring the best out of each performer. And I think that's a real art form. And, you know, for marketers now, sometimes, you know, it can feel a little bit like we micromanage these groups and don't let them be awesome. So I think that's definitely an opportunity. You know, you're right. We have so many different ways to get to consumers in so many different forms and it's so many different different people, too, to your point earlier, much earlier about personalization. I mean, you're right. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if maybe we as marketing industry are really in no way equipped to take on the real challenges of what we're trying to get to. Kind of feels like that sometimes. It feels daunting. Yeah, and I think depending on the size of your organization, really think about the structure that allows your innovative team to go deep. But now we have so many cross-functional partners you know, if you think about the connection point to package design, to your consumer experience, how packaging could drive a whole campaign to your insights team and data analytics and findings that you have there, it's so critical that we figure out how to connect all of those groups and get the best out of them and have them work together. And that's the real challenge for marketers is you really have to be a good connector across all of these various groups. But I think also too, Diane, if I can say, I'm not really so sure that we as marketers understand how all these different sort of uh, channels, dynamics, partners, how they all really fit and work together in sort of connecting with consumers. It's partly because I'm not so sure we had the best of frameworks, but I think it's equally so that like the world and connection points are changing so fast. I don't know how you even keep up. Like somebody said to me, when we got into a discussion at board meeting one time, somebody said, how do you even begin to evaluate a six second ad on Facebook relative to TikTok. It was just as TikTok had sort of come along. Yeah. I'm like, well, how would you make that decision? Like that is really, and then throw in, you know, 15 new other channels. So for me, what it really comes down to is making sure you have a strong brand foundation. So like, what is your brand's yeah. identity? Yeah, what is your brand? What's your yeah. brand architecture? And then it's the integrated brief. 
sometimes the briefing process is siloed for no reason because people have kind of like, okay, the integrated marketing team, they're the only team that needs the brief. Actually, there's a broader group of people that actually need to get this brief to understand what you're trying to accomplish and let them raise their hand and say like, oh, I can play a role in helping you deliver that KPI. Because once you define like what are the goals you're trying to to set, that you're you're not looking at tactic for tactic. You know, your specialists do that for you. Uh, we had a funny thing come up in the AI work that the MMA has been doing. We were struggling with working with our friends over at Kroger's. In fact, what is the creative brief for an AI dynamically generated creative? What does that brief look like? And how do you even begin to write that? The brief wouldn't start with the tactic. The brief would start with, what are you trying to accomplish? And then your specialist would say, is an AI-generated creative the right tool to accomplish this job? Or is it something that needs to be done someplace else? Yeah, I'm not even oh, sure. Oh, but how do you brief the AI? Yeah, well, well, I wasn't even going to go to brief the AI. That's a whole other one. But how do you brief your creative partners and sort of developing for that kind of environment? And the problem is in that some regard, we don't have any asset. We don't have any experience or exposure to really what that's going to look like, kind of back to the other ones. Yeah, and that we're going to test our way in, you know, and be able to figure out, okay, where are brands and areas where I can take a risk here and see if it works? Yeah. And then kind of learn our way into it. But that's something we're still learning as we're going to still learn as an industry. Hey, Dana, you know, listen, this episode is dropping here during Pride Month. So I'm curious, sort of, you know, you, company, however you want to approach it, you know, show your allyship with LGBT. I try to be a huge advocate for the LGBTQ plus community and show up. So for me personally, you know, that's a value construct of mine. And especially as a parent, it's important that I think we set an environment where our kids can grow up and be themselves and be their authentic selves. So it's important to me as I'm raising a little human and have little nieces and uh, little people that are important to me and in my life. But I think as marketers, we really have to think about these moments and times. And I challenge a lot of brands out there that are leveraging the, you know, this Pride Month as an opportunity to engage consumers. I would also say, show your receipts. So how are you showing up for these communities outside of these months and these windows? How are you putting your values and showing your values? And from a DEI perspective, you know, does your boardroom reflect the message that you sent out during these time periods? And I would challenge us all as marketers to live in to the messages that we send and engage with consumers and communities authentically and then show up as allies because it's critical that we all show up as allies. You know what I like so much about what you shared today, Diana, and we'll kind of wrap up here, is um, there's a progressive advancement in thinking that you have around marketing and people and leadership and communities, in particular, especially disadvantaged communities across a whole range of social economic kind of dynamics. And I think in some regards, just your incredible sensitivity to all those elements. So it's admirable. I think you are, you are going to be one we want to watch, but others have said that too. So We'll see. I think I have greatly benefited from a lot of support and a lot of other folks, and I'm just grateful to have this experience. But with that, I also know my role and responsibility to make sure you know I create spaces for the underrepresented groups um, and then people who just do awesome work to thrive. So excited for that and appreciate you lending me this platform and also for your partnership. Oh, you're the best. Absolutely. Thanks. Really appreciate you being with us, Diane. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks again to Diana Housling from Colgate Palmolive for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with Diana. 
And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, please visit MMAglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates. Or write to me, Greg, at MMAglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at BetterCMOs.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Building Better CMOs researcher is Anita Palovska. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.